chapter 8. First word is majesty. Only nine verses in this particular psalm. And yet the beginning and the end is the same. It's extolling the greatness and the glory of God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Majesty. The second word is dignity. The passage deals with the majesty of God and how great and awesome he is, but the passage also deals with the dignity of man. Now, if you paid special attention as Kyle was reading from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, you're going to think about how blessed man was initially. Really, Psalm chapter 8 goes right back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when Adam is placed in the garden. God is mindful of man. Mark that in your Bibles. You talk about a position of honor and dignity, God is mindful. But notice this secondly, and what a blessing this is. God cares for man. Keep on looking at the passage and it says, God made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. He made us special. He made us unique. He crowned man with glory and honor, the passage goes on to say. God gave man dominion over the works of God's own hands, the passage says. And you, God, put all things under man's feet. Those six items from Psalm 8, 4 through 6 should not be taken lightly. When God made man, man is the pinnacle of his creation and he has a position of honor and dignity. A position no one else in all of creation would quite match. This is a psalm of praise. A psalm that praises God for His honor and glory and excellence, and a psalm that praises God because of the position and dignity that He gave to man. And then Genesis 3 happened. Sin entered the world. And things changed. And while the position of man is still wonderful, something has been broken in the relationship because of sin. Now, I talked about this psalm just focusing on it last Sunday. And for people that get the idea that you can exhaust what the Bible says in one sermon, nuh-uh. Because this psalm is quoted four times in the New Testament. You probably didn't know that. What I'd like for us to do tonight is to look at the four occasions when Psalm chapter 8 is quoted and how the New Testament with its additional light and revelation helps us to see that what was lost in Adam is restored and more in Jesus. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. 
This is the first of those four occurrences. Look at Matthew chapter 21, and notice especially, beginning at verse 12. Verse 16 is the actual quote, and it is a quote from Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2. Psalm 8 and verse 2. But let me give the context. Jesus has made the triumphant entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. You pick up at verses 12 and 13, he cleanses the temple. And he speaks of commercialization that was going on within the temple, making it a house of merchandise. The text goes on to say, as you look at Matthew 21, that he healed many who were lame and blind there within the confines of the temple. And as he was doing this, Children were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. And this caused, all the things that were going on, caused the chief priest and experts in the law to become indignant. They were ticked off, they were upset, because Jesus had, in the first place, cleansed the temple and talked about their taking a place of prayer and turning it into a place for business. And secondly, he'd been healing, but it was almost the straw that broke the camel's back, as we might say, when children started to speak, Hosanna, salvation to the Son of David. And it is the response of the Lord here to quote from Psalm 8 and verse 2. Now go back to Psalm 8 and verse 2. Really in context, the idea in verses 2 and 3 quite simply is this. In a world that is so intricate and big and magnificent, even infants and babies offer Him praise. They, they sing to God's strength. They laud His strength and power. They lift up God. Jesus takes this and understandably uses it. And He says this is just an example of children. And the idea here, Troy, we're not just talking about babes and infants. We're talking about children on this case. A little older. Singing, praising God. Hosanna to the Son of David. He says, if it was appropriate in Psalm 8 for babies and infants, as little and insignificant as they seem to be, it's more appropriate now that they're a little bit older, and it certainly would be appropriate for adults, and most of all, you would think it would be appropriate for the chief priest and the experts in the law to be giving praise to God for the things that were being done. Notice Matthew 21, 9. It was all right for the people to give praise to Jesus when he made the triumphant entry. And Jesus affirms the same thing is true now that he's cleansed the temple and been healing. Some people might be upset, they might be indignant, but he says, guess what? I am the son of David. 
He doesn't use those terms. But that seems to be the idea that he's getting across. I am the one that God made the promise to concerning David. From his lineage, one would come who would bless all. Now, have you stopped to think about what's left out? He only quotes part of Psalm 8 and verse 2. The part about the children, infants and babies, in the original there from Psalm 8. But he leaves out the fact that foes and enemies are going to be confused and flabbergasted. They're just not going to get it. Who would the chief priest and experts in the law be? if they could not acknowledge the praise that was being given by the children, foes and enemies. Ouch. If you're not going to praise me for who I am and acknowledge that even what the children are saying is true, you ought to know better and ought to join in. Second passage. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice especially verses 25 through 27. Now what Paul does in this passage will be what is done in the next three. Matthew 21 is interesting, and Jesus just basically says from Psalm 8, children were praising God for the great things that he'd done. You ought to be praising God for the great things that are going on here. You're the religious leaders for crying out loud. You get to 1 Corinthians 15, it's the great resurrection chapter. How that if we have only put our faith in God and it's empty in vain, the resurrection, we're of all men most pitiable. Verses 17 through 19. But look at verses 25 through 27. Verse 25 quotes Psalm 110. Verse 1. And Brother Terry, when you get there, read Psalm 110, verse 1 for everybody. Because after that, verse 27 is going to quote Psalm 8 and verse 6. The next three passages, Jack, this one, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27, and the next two combine these two psalms. In an amazing type of way. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your You see something along those lines in verse 25? You should, of 1 Corinthians 15. Read verse 25, Terry, for everybody when you get there, please. That's right. Now look at verse 27 because verse 27 refers to Psalm 8 and verse 6. Psalm 8, verse 6. Lynn, would you mind? 1 Corinthians 15, 27. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who who put all things under him is accepted. Thank you. And when you're looking at the context of 1 Corinthians 15, answer this one for me. The last enemy that will be 
destroyed is, according to 1 Corinthians 15, what? Death. All things are subject to Christ, according to this passage, including death. Who's Jesus? He is called the second Adam. And I don't mean that one sitting over there. What happened with the first Adam? He was blessed in every way and he was given life, but because of sin, he brought death upon humanity. Isn't that right? But the second Adam, by his death, brings life to everybody. See the distinction? And you shouldn't miss it. What was lost in the first Adam, which would have to do with being crowned with glory and honor, which was, would have to do with having dominion over the works of, of, of God's hands. We would be the, the pinnacle of God's creation. To some extent, to a great extent, that's all been lost due to sin. But because of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 says, that relationship is restored and more. We have life. Third passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And this is an interesting context to find Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. But we see it in Ephesians 1 verses 20 through 23. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. What I want you to get from 1 Corinthians 15 that we just examined while you're there in Ephesians 1 is this. Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 and he applies both of them to Jesus. That's something that wasn't done in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 has to do with what? What's the two main words? Majesty and what? Dignity. Majesty of God, dignity of man. What was lost due to sin is restored through the God-man, Jesus. Now you look at Ephesians 1. Verses 15 through 23 are a prayer. 15 and 16 are introductory matters concerning prayer because of their faith and the love that Paul has and their love for the Lord. But notice what he prays beginning in verse 16. He prays that they might know God. Well, they're already Christians. He prays that they might know God in an ever-increasing rich way. Notice that the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are each referred to in the passage. Do you see it? Verse 17. See it? Continue with me. He prays that they may know the light of God. The light of God. That your eyes might be enlightened. 
that they might know holiness, that they might know purity, that they might know God's light. Keep looking at the passage. He prays that they might know God, that they might know His light, that they might know hope in God. When a person thinks everything's hopeless, their life is truly tragic. That they might know hope in God. That they might know, notice this next, right in the passage, just keep looking at your Bibles. Sometimes those little words that are either specifically stated or implied mean so much. Listen, Waylon, that they might know God's riches. That's right there in the passage. That they might know God's riches. I want you to know God. I want you to know God's light. I want you to know God's hope. I want you to know God's riches. What a prayer. And then he goes on to say, I want you to know God's power in your life. See it? In verse 19. Now what happens is verses 20 through 23. How do we know God? How do we know the light? How do we know the hope that God provides? How do we know God's riches? How do we know God's power? And the answer, verses 20 through 23, is Jesus Christ. Verse 20 quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And verse 22 quotes Psalm 8 and verse 6. Do those passages sound familiar? They should. The footstool of your feet, the enemies will be. Psalm 110.1, Ephesians 1.20. And then verse 22 Quoting Psalm 8, verse 6. Now look at verses 20 through 23 with me. In this section, verse 20, you have reference made to Christ's resurrection and to his ascension and exaltation. Do you see it? Then you have, in verses 21 and 22, reference made to his authority and how we should be submissive to him. And then verses 22 and 23, you have reference to the fact that he is the head of the church. That he is the fullness of the one who fulfills all, who fills all, rather I should say, in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. You want to know God. You want to know God's light. You want to know God's hope. You want to know God's riches. You want to know God's power. Look no farther. Look to Jesus. And so what Paul does again through the Holy Spirit is he takes a psalm, Psalm 8, that initially, Troy, is just about praising God and the dignity of man. And he says, because of Jesus, 
the majesty of God is brought down so we can really see what God's like. Last passage. No, we don't normally do this kind of stuff, but you know what? We need to. Because we ought to know how the New Testament uses the old and not flippantly think about it or superficially. The New Testament gives us additional revelation about passages in the Old Testament that we would have never conjured up, Tim. No Jew would put a messianic interpretation on Psalm 8. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And you talk about the majesty of God and the dignity of man. Before we look at Hebrews 2, and the verses will be 5 through 9, go back to Hebrews chapter 1. And this is so cool it should be illegal, but it's not. You look at Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is God. Isn't that the idea? Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 is one of the strongest New Testament passages affirming the divinity, the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. He's better than the angels, Hebrews 1, verses 5 to the end of the chapter, right? You see all of that there, and it's talking about the enthronement of Jesus, and it's dealing with his exaltation and his deity, his godhood. Now what the writer does masterfully in chapter 2 in our Bibles is this. In chapter 2, he begins with a warning. It's the first of five in the book of Hebrews. And it talks about the danger of drifting away from God and His Word. But you could just, if you wanted to, it's an aside, this warning is... Because when you start looking at verse 5 and you go through chapter 2 and verse 18, he's still talking about how awesome Jesus is, but now he's talking about Jesus in his humanity. Chapter 1, Jesus is his majesty. He's God. Chapter 2, Jesus and his humanity the dignity of man. What was lost through Adam is restored and more through Jesus. Now look, if you will, with me. You actually could read from 1-5 to the end of the chapter and start picking up at chapter 2, verse 5, if you wanted to. But the warning's important, and it's there for a reason, about the danger of drifting away from God and His Word. But when you get to verses 5 through 9, Christ put on humanity. Why? Let verses 5 through 9 answer. That he might restore man's dignity and place. He, by the grace of God, tasted of death For every man. Why did he put on humanity? So that he could restore man's dignity and place as initially created. Number two. 
Look at verses 10 through 13. Why did Jesus put on humanity? We sing the song, Why did my Savior come to earth and to the humble go? Well, verses 10 through 13 indicate that He put on humanity to bring many sons to glory. Do you see that? Something was lost that was precious. And He put on humanity so that He might bring us home to God. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. Now look at verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews 2. Why did my Savior come to earth? He came to earth to destroy the one who had the power of death, the devil, and to deliver us from the fear of death. What are you scared of? Maybe you're scared of dying a horrible, painful, excruciating death. He came to destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver us from the fear of death. See 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Next. Look at verses 17 and 18, the last two verses of the chapter. Why did he put on humanity? See, if chapter 1 deals with his enthronement and he's God, chapter 2 deals with his incarnation. He's man. Jesus is God-man. And verses 17 and 18 said that he put on humanity... Because he had to become like us in order to be a sympathetic high priest. Is that what the passage says, Troy? Am I doing justice to what it says, y'all? He had to so he could be like us and could sympathize with us, relate. So a chapter that began by talking about God's majesty and man's dignity ends up in the New Testament being talked about. And in those three last passages we examined together, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, and Hebrews 2, extolling Jesus and His majesty as the Son of God for coming down to restore something that had been lost due to sin. Now, that's kind of fun. And thank God that we have New Testament revelation to go along with Old Testament teaching too. Thank you for listening. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. And I tell you what, if you're one of those people like the rest of us who understand something about what's been lost due to sin, Coming to Jesus, responding to His love and grace and gift of salvation ought to be what it's all about because you want to be a person that again has a sense of dignity. The way God initially created us to be. Through faith and repentance and baptism, one responds to the soul-saving, sin-cleansing blood of Christ. At that point, one becomes part of the church over which he has head. Come to Jesus. Let us stand and sing.